are going to be picking up tonight uh, where we left off last week in the Didache. And again, just uh, in case there are some here that don't remember, this is an early, early church document that actually predates much of the New Testament. Um, it is not Holy Spirit-inspired scripture. It was basically like a, um, uh, um, a guidance document for Christians and church gatherings in the, the very early days before the New Testament was comprised and put together. And so this is a document that I felt like was very interesting to study. Um, at, uh, again, I always tell you, we do not get our doctrine from this. Um, we go back to the written word of God, to the apostles' teaching in the Bible, and that's where we pull all of our doctrine and all of our teaching from. But it is interesting to me to go back and see some of the ways the early church did things. Like, for instance, right now we're looking at the Lord's Supper and the way that they actually did the Lord's Supper. And, and it was it was interesting um, to see that it used to be a full meal. It wasn't just um, uh, a um, little piece of cracker and a little cup of juice like we have today. It was literally a, they came together and they had a complete meal. And during that meal, they celebrated what the bread, the broken bread represented and what the fruit of the vine or the wine represented. And so the elements of the Lord's Supper that we do today were in their full meal, but it was interesting to be able to see that, and again, we talked about it last week, it is my personal belief that likely somewhere around 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we looked at that last week, that that full meal turned into no longer being the Lord's Supper. Remember Paul said last week, he said, this is not the Lord's Supper that you are partaking of. And the reason being is because you're jumping in front of each other and you're getting full and you're getting drunk. And Paul says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? But when you come together, your purpose should be to remember what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. And so... I want you to understand that when we go back and look at this, and you may be tempted to look at it and say, well, if the early church used to do a full meal, then why don't we? Well, here's the thing you have to understand. We're not under law. They were not trying to develop some kind of order to say, now as long as you do this this way and this this way and this this way, then you will be saved and you will be right with the Lord. No, what we were looking at is the heart of the law. And the heart of the law in the Lord's Supper is not that it must be a full meal and that it must be this A, B, C, D, and E, but instead the heart of the Lord's Supper is to remember that the Lord Jesus' body was broken so that you and I could be made whole from our sinful condition. The Lord Jesus Christ's blood was shed so that you and I could have a new covenant with God Almighty and a new reconciliation with Him through this blood that covers our sins. And as we remember that, we proclaim our faith in that broken body and that shed blood until the day that He comes back and we're one with Him completely. And so the heart of the Lord's Supper is a memorial meal that we do because we're forgetful people and we need to be reminded, okay? So as we look at this document, again, 
you're going to see that they may not have done things exactly the way that we do them, but still the heart of the matter is the same. We are remembering the Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made on our behalf and what it has uh, purchased us and the benefits that we receive as a result of his sacrifice. And so tonight we're in chapter 10 and we're looking at the prayer after the communion. And um, as I told you last week, one of the things that we saw in this is that what they did in the very early, early church is that because there was so much uh, Judaism or, or um, Jewish influence, let me say that, and rightfully so, because Jesus himself said, salvation is of the Jews. Salvation came to the Jews first. And many of the 12 apostles, I believe all of them, maybe not all of them, but many of them were Jewish people. Um, I want to say all of them were, but I, I, I can't remember if that's the case or not. But still, I know this, many of them, if not all of them, were Jewish people, and they were the leaders of the church. They were the first ones to actually go out with the gospel. And so I truly believe that it's, it's very uh, understandable to us that there would have been a great Jewish influence in these churches. And as a result of that, when they did things like the Lord's Supper, they did it in orders like they would do Jewish meals. And they would have a cup that they would start off with and they would bless it with. And then they would have a meal that they would go and they would have prayers and eat part of it that they would say. And so what we saw is that as they're doing the Lord's Supper, they're going through this meal, but in the place of Jewish prayers, they Christianize it. And instead of just thanking God for providing bread, they thank God for bread of life and for what it represents and how he brought it to us through Jesus Christ. And where the Jews would thank God for the fruit of the vine and the cup, the giver of all good things, now the Christians would take it to that part and they would use a model of that prayer, but they would attribute it to the Lord Jesus Christ and his, um, him being the holy vine of David, as we talked about last week again. But then we reach a point to where, notice in the first part of chapter 10, it says, but after you are filled. Do you see that? Again, here's the point. The Lord's Supper used to be a full meal. And during that meal, if I, my studies are correct, and a lot of this we don't know for certain because the truth of the matter is we weren't there. And we don't have enough evidence to tell us exactly how a meal would have went. But when, again, when we go back and we study passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we see very plainly that it was a full meal because they were coming in, getting full, getting drunk, and then Paul has to come in and he has to make some changes because they've lost touch on what the purpose of the Lord's Supper was. And he has to really refocus it. And again, I believe that's likely where we get the smaller Lord's Supper that you and I have today that just focuses on the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says, after you are filled, give thanks this way. And so one of the things, again, that we're going to see here is that this is a after-meal prayer is what it would be. And basically, it is the same thing that was commanded. Um, uh, somebody, um, Tim, do you have a Bible? Look up Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 10, and read what the, the command of Moses was to the Jews after they got done eating. 
Okay, so here's the point. After the Jews got done with the meal and they were filled, it was their custom, according to the law, for them to have a prayer that they prayed to God, giving God thanks for again, for all, giving them all good things, the good land that he has put them in, the good uh, food that he's blessed with, the good fruit of the vine that they have drunk of. And so they had a prayer. It was called the Birkat Hamazon is what it was called. And you could actually look that up on Google if you wanted to. But the point is that this was a prayer that they prayed. It was custom for any Jewish person to pray this as an after-meal prayer. The Christians in the early church just followed the same custom, that after they were done being filled, even though it was the Lord's Supper, if you will, that they would in turn say this prayer. And again, all they did was they Christianized the Jewish prayer, and this is the way that it would go. It says, we thank you, Holy Father. Now, here, the first thing is the way that they would dress it. Now, when you go back and you read the Jewish after-meal prayer, it doesn't say, we thank you, Holy Father. It actually says, we thank you, let me find it real quick. I'd have to look for it again, but anyway, it basically says, we thank you, God and the ruler of the universe, the creator of all good things. And so they didn't acknowledge him necessarily as their own personal father, but the Christians, being taught by Jesus himself, understood God not just as the ruler of the universe, but our father. We are his children, adopted into his family because of what Jesus has done for us. And so they recognize and address him as holy father, and then they would thank him, he says, for your holy name, which you did cause to tabernacle or to, to dwell within. That's what it means to tabernacle, is to dwell with. And so he says, we thank you for your holy name, which you did cause to tabernacle in our hearts. And ultimately, they're just acknowledging that God, the Holy Father, our Father, that because of what Jesus has done for us, he dwells in, his, in our hearts. Now, the reason why they say we thank you for your holy name is because to a Jewish person, a name defines who you are and represents who you are. Let me give you an example of that. Um, Chris, would you look up Genesis chapter 25, verse 25 and 26? Bobby, would you look up Ruth chapter 1, verse 20? And Daniel, would you look up 1 Samuel 25, verse 25. And Chris, whenever you're ready, read Genesis 25, verse 25 through 26. All right, so stop right there for just a second. So why did they call his name Esau? Because it described who he was, right? So again, to a Jewish person, a name was more than a name. The name was representative, and it actually um, defined who this person was. Keep reading, Chris. So 
again, the reason his name was called Jacob was because he came out holding his brother's heel, trying to take his place. And so when you go back, I'm not going to do this, but when you go back and you study the names Jacob and Esau and understand what they mean, this is the reason why they named them that, because it represented who they were. Now, who did I get, Bobby? Uh, Ruth chapter 1, verse 20. So Naomi actually changed her own name. She said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara from now on because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And Mara literally means bitterness. And so, again, she recognized that for a Jewish name, it, it defined who she was at any given time. Um, Daniel, read 1 Samuel 25, verse 25. is his name and folly or foolishness is with him. Now I don't know what parent would name their child foolishness but that is what his name meant and that is exactly the way that he lived his life. And so again it was a definition and a representative of who he is. We could do this all night long but for the Jews it's important for you to understand that a name meant a lot. When you came in the name of somebody it represented who they were. So if you came in the name of, of Abraham, you was coming in the name of something, as somebody. If you came in the name of Naboth, you coming in the name of foolishness is what you're coming in. And so ultimately, whatever the name is that you, that, that, that you take on and that dwells with you, it actually becomes what defines who you are. Now, in the same way, the one who does the naming is actually the one who defines what, uh, um, who the person is. Let me give you an example. Um, Jesse, look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. P, would you look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 20? Kanetha, would you look at Genesis chapter 17, verse 5? And then in that same chapter, I'll get you to read verse 15 and 16 of Genesis chapter 17. job was to look at all of the animals of the world and his job was to name them and he named them by how he defined them into whatever it was that, that he saw in them and so in that is where he actually found that there was not one that could be defined as comparable to him you see that? now um, who did I get the next one? T? So Adam calls his wife Eve because that name means the mother of all living. And so ultimately that's why he called. He gave the name and as he set the name it defined who she was. And so let me give another one. Um, Kanetha, read Genesis 17 verse 5.
you see how God now becomes the one that defines who Abraham is by giving him the name that represents who he is. Same thing that Jesus did with Judas. And I'll let Kenneth finish reading here in a minute. Well, not Judas, Peter. He looked at Peter when he first met him and he said, You are Simon, son of Barjona, but you shall be Peter, which is translated to mean what? A rock, a firm foundation. And so ultimately, Jesus looked at Peter and he saw him. He, this is who you are but this is who you're going to be. So they're the one that names him became the one that defines who he is. Is everybody tracking with me? You see what the, what the Jews understood in a name? Uh, can I just keep reading in verse 15 and 16 of Genesis chapter 17? and kings of people shall be from her. So there again, her name defined and it represented who we are. And again, we can do this all night. We can go through the entire Bible and we can do this over and over again. The point that I'm trying to make is that for a Jew, it was important that they understood a name represented and defined who this person was. Now let's look at what God said his name was. So somebody... Um, uh, let's go with um, uh, Riley. Can you turn to Exodus chapter 3 and read verse 12 through 14? Here he tells Moses, but I will be with you. Now this is the same word that he uses here in a minute when he tells Moses, I am. That's my name. And ultimately what he's saying is, I am with you. That's my name. I exist. I am here. I dwell with you. I'm with you. I am present with you. Now keep reading, Riley. this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. In other words, he is the one that exists. I exist is what that literally means. I am present. I am here. I always have been. I am. I always will be. This is the definition of God. And here he tells Moses, I am with you. I am sending you to my people. They're going to be my people. I'm going to be their God. And so when they would pray here in this prayer and say, God, our Father, thank you for your holy name, which you did cause to tabernacle or to dwell in our hearts. Basically, they're recognizing that 
God and who he is is represented in his name alone, his holy name. And he has caused that to dwell in us, and then keep going in the prayer of the Didache here, and for the knowledge and the faith and the immortality. So we thank you for dwelling with us. We thank you for the knowledge that you've given us. We thank you for the faith that you've given us. We thank you for the immortality that you've given us. And this all has become known to us through Jesus, your servant, to you be the glory forever and ever. So again, part of the Lord's Supper for them and after prayer was simply acknowledging that through Jesus Christ, God has given us his presence to dwell in us. God has given us faith. God has given us immortality. God has given us so many great and, and, and precious promises through Jesus Christ, his servant. And because of that, to him belongs the glory forever and ever. Now, keep going. He says, you, Master Almighty, did create all things for your name's sake. So again, they're looking at this Jewish prayer that everything we've got, food, drink, whatever it is, you created it and you did it all for your name's sake. He says, you gave food and drink to men for enjoyment, that they might give thanks to you. But to us, so again, we're here we're looking at the difference in the Jewish prayer and the spiritual prayer. And the Jewish prayer would just be thanking God for the physical food and the physical things that they have received from him. The Christians now take it and they take it just a step further. And they say, God, not only did you give us great things that you created all of them, but here's the transition. To us, you did freely give spiritual food and drink and life eternal through your servant. And here they're acknowledging the fact that through what the supper they just partook of represented, that it is actually spiritual food. Now, I want to be very careful right here. And the reason I say that is because for many years there have been a heated, heated debate over whether when we partake of the bread and the wine, and when we bless it, are we actually partaking of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? And a lot of people would say today, well, that's crazy. That's crazy. Hey, who in here has ever heard of Bloody Mary? Do you know why she is called Bloody Mary? That's right. She killed almost 300 Protestants. And when I say Protestants, they were people who protested things in the Catholic faith. For instance, the Catholic faith had begun to teach things like this. When you partake of the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, that's how you receive the grace of God. So in other words, if you want to be saved and if you want to be right with God, then here's what you need to do. You need to make sure that you come to church and you partake of the Lord's Supper because if you don't do that, then the grace of God is not imparted to you. Now, what's the problem with that teaching? How are we saved? There you go. 
So here's the problem. In the Old Testament, when they would partake of the sacrifice, anybody could take a sacrifice to the priest and then take part of that home and then eat that and it'd just be a meal. But it was only by faith that they could please God. Matter of fact, the Bible says the just have always lived by faith. In other words, what do I mean? They would partake of this and understand what it represents and by faith believe the promise of God that God, through the sacrifice that he is going to give for me, which this represents in the Old Testament, y'all with me in the same timeline, through this, that God in my faith in what he is going to do, God is going to accredit it to me as righteousness, the same way he did Abraham. Well, the Catholic Church had begun to turn salvation into a works-based salvation so that it was no longer by faith. Now, as long as you are baptized, as long as you are partaking of the Mass, as long as you are coming in and you are doing the Eucharist, and then there's an, as long as you are confessing your sins to the priest and he's giving you what you need to do in order... You ever watch the TV shows to where... Uh, you see the guy come in and he sits down beside the booth and he says, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. And it's been 360 days since my last confession. And then he confesses his sins and the priest says, um, go and do 10 Hail Marys and community service and give this and give that and then you'll be forgiven. Is that the way forgiveness works? <laughs> Right, but still, you see the point that I'm making is that the Catholic Church had turned salvation into if you do this and you do this and you do this. In other words, it's rituals, and as long as you do these things, then this is how you're going to be made right with God. What? That's correct. The last rites. Yeah, the last rites for, uh, for a Catholic. So anyway, we as Baptists are Protestants. We protest that. And the way we protest it is by saying that we believe in Scripture and Scripture alone that is our guide. And Scripture says that we are saved by faith in Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone. Glory to God alone. That is how we are saved. All right? Now, Queen Mary wanted to start turning things back to Roman Catholicism. And she basically had a question for these Protestant Christians. And there were many children that she actually burned at the stake because of their confession or not. But here was the question. Do you believe when we partake the Lord's Supper and when the priest blessed, blesses that bread and blesses that wine that it literally becomes the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and by partaking of that, you eat and drink salvation unto yourself. If you said yes, you got to live. If you said no, we do not believe that that is the actual body and the actual blood, but we partake of it by faith and it represents, it is spiritual food that we partake of by faith. And as we do it by faith, God accredits to us righteousness. If you believe that, then you were burned at the stake. So, for years, this has been a heated debate.
But again, what I want to be careful of tonight is that when we talk about spiritual food and we talk about partaking in the Lord's Supper, I want you to understand. When you eat of that physically, even after it is blessed, it is bread and it is juice. But by faith, when you partake of it, God blesses and he continues to accredit to you the righteousness that you received at salvation and it is something that we do to remember over and over and it is a work of our faith that we continuously do. It's not that every time we do it, God gives us a little bit more forgiveness and a little bit more righteousness. No, it is something we do because we believe as we do it, this is how we receive righteousness in the first place. And if it weren't for this broken body and this shed blood, we would have no reconciliation with God and we would be lost forever in our sins. And so when they would pray and they would say things right here like, but to us you did freely give spiritual food and drink and life eternal through your servant, they're recognizing that by faith they have just, they have just proclaimed that they believe that this broken body and this shed blood is how we are made right with God eternal, the creator of all good things. And then he says next, Before all things we thank you that you are mighty. To you be the glory forever. Remember, Lord, your church to deliver it from all evil. Again, that's important because as believers that are uh, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, we're being called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And how many of you have figured out yet that that's a fight? That's a fight. We fight with our sin. We fight with our evil heart. And here the, the church just prays together and they pray, Lord, you remember your church to deliver it from all evil and to make it perfect in your love and gather it from the four winds sanctified for your kingdom which thou have prepared for it. And so here is just a prayer of, Lord, we want you to come. We're ready for this. And this ought to be the cry of the church. Listen, the truth of the matter is, guys, we, you and I, have gotten way too comfortable in this world. We really have. We've gotten way too comfortable with this cursed world. And there ought to be something in us that cries out for God's kingdom to come so that we can escape this evilness and our sin and all the struggles and the fights that we're fighting with and the curse of this world that we experience. And so he says here, God, gather your church together that you sanctified for your kingdom which, for which thou have prepared for it. For yours is the power and the glory forever. Then he says, let grace come and let this world pass away. Again, undeserved mercy. The cry of the church after they have partaken of the Lord's Supper. Because when you partake of the Lord's Supper, you're thinking about what it has purchased for you. And the cry of you ought to be, Lord, we're ready for that to be here right now. Lord, come. Let your grace come and let this world pass away. Because we know it's going to happen. And we're praying for that now. And then he says next, Hosanna to the son of David. I love that, that part right there. Hosanna. That word means to, um, to save now. When you break it apart, it actually breaks apart like this. Hos, the first part, which 
means deliver. Anna, which means we beg you. Deliver, we beg you. Save us now, we beg you. We are ready for your kingdom to come right now. And I'm going to tell you, the more you learn about what Jesus Christ has purchased for you, the more you learn about what that is like and what that will be and how it compares to this world and what you have here, you'll start, you'll start crying that. Hosanna, Lord, we beg you, save us now. And then notice what he says next. Hosanna to the God, the son of David, or to Jesus, save us now. If anyone is holy, let him come. If anyone is not so, let him repent. And so here I believe that what we're fixing to get into is he's fixing to start preaching about um, what a, 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 a simple Lord's Supper meal, and you don't have that yet, but if you get the entire Didache, you can skip over to chapter 14. And chapter 14 begins to describe, I think we're in chapter 11 right here, I think is what this is. Chapter 14 begins to describe how the Lord's Supper looks whenever we come together for a church service, not just an assembly where we eat a full meal together. But before that happens, he starts showing who is welcome and who's not, who should be received in the church and who should be rejected in the church. And he's going to look at prophets, apostles. He's going to look at um, um, disciples and um, church Christians, and we're going to see all that in the next few chapters. But still, the fact is this. He says here before we get started, if anyone is holy, let him come. In other words, you can partake of this unity meal that we partake of, all right? But if not, if you're not, did he say go away and don't come back? What does he say? Repent. Repent. You know, this is another thing that's left out of the modern gospel today. The modern gospel today says just live however you want to live. Jesus loves you. God is not angry at all. Y'all have heard me say this so many times if you've been here any length of time. But I used to drive through Huntsville, and on the biggest billboard they had, the biggest billboard going down Highway 72, you would look up at a big sign that said, God is not angry with you no matter what. Thank you. They missed that verse, didn't they? They missed that verse. God demands repentance. He demands it. That is the very first word of the kingdom that the Lord Jesus preached when he started preaching. Go back in the early parts of the gospel and find the very first word the Lord Jesus ever said in his very first sermon. You know what it was? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. Yes, we got preachers running out here today saying there ain't nothing required of you for your salvation but just to believe. Listen, even the demons believe. They tremble. No, we are required by faith to be called out of darkness and we repent of our sins as we trust the gospel and we believe the gospel and we go to war at that moment with our sins. And yes, we continue to fight it. We continue to sin. We backslide, we get back, 
But one thing is for certain. If you have ever been called by the Lord Jesus out of darkness into his marvelous light, he's working in you. And you may quench that Holy Spirit. You may grieve the Holy Spirit. But you better believe one thing. If the Holy Spirit is in you, he's going to win. He's going to win. And he is going to work on you. And when we come before the Lord's Supper to partake of this and to proclaim our faith and what he has done for us, our job is to repent of our sin and then come and thank him for the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace that freely comes because of what he has done and he alone. And we proclaim it and we rejoice in that. But it's very important that if you are not holy, if you are in sin, then you have a responsibility to to repent, to stop, to confess your sin to the Lord God Almighty and to, to turn away from those things. And the only reason you will not is if at that present time you love your darkness more than you love his light. Go back and read John chapter 3 verse, um, let's just go there. John, if you got your Bible, go with me to John chapter 3. I think it's verse 18 or 19. There you go. So here's the problem. When you heard the gospel, he called you out of light, I mean out of darkness into the light. He called you out of sin into his righteousness in Christ Jesus to follow him. And ultimately, the judgment that will come upon people is that light came into the world. You were able to see. Anyone that, that, that heard the gospel was able to see this is sin, this is light. And yet the judgment will be that light came into the world and yet you loved the darkness more than you did the light. How will you know that? Because their deeds were continuously evil. They continued walking in this evil. For a true Christian, their heart bleeds at the evil in their life. It bleeds at the evil and the sin in their life. And their heart is, when it comes to this right here, we're reminded that he has called us out of this darkness. And now, I love the light. And if I love the light, is repentance really that difficult? If I love the light. And so it ought to be our understanding that when God calls us to repent of our sins, it's not something that should be something dreaded. It's not something that unless indeed you actually love the darkness more than the light. And if you do love the darkness more than the light, it's probably likely that you've never been called out. Exactly right. That's exactly right. So that's the end of that prayer is when you come before the Lord's table, if you are holy, then come on. But if anyone is not so, let him repent. 
And then the last word of this prayer, he says, Maranatha. Maranatha, the, the um, um, Melinda came out Monday morning and she said to me, she said, Shalom, Pastor. And Shalom, again, as I told you last week, it, it was the Jewish greeting that meant complete peace is what we pray over you, is what we want for you. Peace in every area of your life, inner, outer, all around, your family, your loved one, everywhere you look is just the peace of God. But the problem with that is this. That is the prayer of the Jewish people, but did they ever see it? Have we seen it yet? No. And so the, the cry of the church changed from peace to Maranatha, which simply means come Lord. Lord, come. That's our prayer. Why did they do this? Because Jesus himself said, somebody turn to uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Um, Melinda, turn to Matthew 10, verse 34. <coughs> and Lane, do you have a Bible? Look up um, Luke chapter 12, verse 51. catch that? Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace. See, we think Christianity is just a get along, or that's what the world thinks today. Christianity is just get along with everybody. And here's the thing about it. We are called to love the way Jesus loved, right? But we are not called to accept what Jesus did not accept. And so we have a responsibility not to bring peace, but a sword. Our job is to make sure that when we bring the Word of God into their life, that we love them enough to let them know that God loves you enough to call you to repentance. But you cannot continue to walk in the paths that you're walking. He has come to call you out of darkness into His marvelous light, just like me and you. And so... We have to understand that Jesus did not come to bring peace. We are not going to experience the kind of peace, the shalom, that the Jewish people prayed for and longed for and that you and I pray for and long for that we're going to experience when Jesus comes. So the Christians quit saying shalom, and now instead of saying shalom, their greeting and their goodbyes were maranatha. Lord Jesus because the only way that we're ever going to experience true peace is whenever he comes and that's our longing now who did I say Lane what was that Matthew alright so again Jesus taught very plainly that he came to actually divide. Now again, I'm not telling you that we go out into the world and we hate people because that's wrong. No, that's wrong. People that stand at the entrance of the fairgrounds down here and, and hate people that are homosexuals or drag queens or whatever else, wrong. Dead wrong. But what we do do is love them enough to tell them the truth. Because here's the end of it. I'm sexually immoral too outside of Jesus Christ. 
Just because mine don't manifest itself in the same way theirs does don't mean mine's any better. But praise God that he called me out of my sexual immorality and out of my lying and my thieving and all the other sins that were in my life, and he called me into his marvelous light. And now we have a responsibility to not just bring peace and just get along with everybody and tolerate everything. No, our job is to call sin, sin. But to love people and to love them enough to show them the light of the glory of Christ, to show them what Christ has done in my life, what he has called me out of, that we must repent. And if we don't repent, and the Bible ultimately says, if they don't receive the gospel from you, don't smack them in the face and get mad at them. Shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next one. That's exactly right. exactly right. So our cry is, Lord, come, because until you come, there's not going to be any peace. We're not going to experience this shalom in the way that we hope for it. Now, are we going to have the peace of God? Absolutely. But you know, shalom is different than just inner peace. Shalom is peace everywhere, in everything, and you will not have that until the Lord Jesus and so the church's cry was, Maranatha, Lord, come. Amen. But permit the prophets to make thanksgiving as much as they desire. Now here's the next thing. Whenever they were gathered together and they were partaking of the Lord's Supper, this was the order that kind of they did. They went through and they blessed the cup. They said a prayer over it. They blessed the bread. They said a prayer over it. When everybody had had their fill and the meal was complete, then they prayed and they thanked God for Jesus and for his presence in our lives. And they prayed, Lord, we can't wait for you to come back and we're ready for your kingdom to be here and your church to be gathered. And this was a celebration as they did this of their longing and their hope that they had. And then he said, but this ain't where the thanksgiving stops. Let the prophets make all the thanksgiving they want to make. In other words, if there's a, a man in the house like myself that, that speaks the inspired word of God and he wants to stand at this time and give thanks for other things, let him stand and give thanks. If Chris wants to stand and give thanks, let him stand and give thanks. If Bobby wants to stand and give thanks, let him stand and give thanks. This is a time that we come together and we just offer up all the thanks we can come up with to God because he's worthy of it all. And so this is just the order of what a church service would have looked like in this time. And then in chapter 11, he moves into, again, who is worthy and who is to be received and who is to be rejected. So he says, whosoever, therefore. Now what does therefore do? What, is, what kind of word is that? It's a connecting word. And it connects you to where he come from, right? So in other words, the last thing that he said was, listen, if you're holy, let him come. If he's not, let him repent. There are certain people that belong that, that should be partaking and, and a part of this worship and what we're doing. And there are certain people that shouldn't be. And the only thing that divides the two is repentance. That's it. And that, my friends, is in your hands. It's your responsibility. But whosoever, therefore, comes 
and teaches you all of these things that have been said before. So now he backs up on everything that's been taught and said in this. And if this person comes and they teach according to everything that you've just heard, then what do you do? Receive it. You receive it. But if the teacher himself turns and teaches another doctrine to the destruction of this, hear him not. So if he's not teaching according to the way of life that we started with in this document and the way of death that we're walking away from in this document, if he's not teaching according to the longing for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation through faith alone that Jesus has purchased for us, if he's not coming and teaching those things, do not receive him. And there are many today that are not teaching these things. And so he says here, you don't, don't receive him. But then notice what he says next. But if he teaches so as to increase righteousness and the knowledge of the Lord. So here's what you're looking for in a teacher. If a teacher is coming in here and he's teaching in a way that increases righteousness in your life, that causes you to, to uh, be called to live holy, right? And he is doing that in accordance to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You receive him, what does it say next in that? As the Lord. In other words, these are the words of the Lord. And you receive him as you receive the Lord. Not because he is the Lord, but because he stands in the name of the Lord proclaiming the truth of the word of the Lord and therefore you have a responsibility to receive that and to actually learn from that and to apply that to your life. And anybody that will not, you don't receive. Y'all tracking with me? That's tough, ain't it? Because I know we want to be the kind of church that says everybody just come in. Everybody be a part of this thing. Can I tell you that everybody's not a part of this thing? They're not. And there is a standard. And there is a way of life for Christians. And we have a responsibility to love each other enough to lead in that direction. And if a person will not, then what they're doing is proving that they are either so far backslidden that they are quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit in a wrestling match like none other, or they're proving that they're not born again at all. They've never been called out of darkness and thereby do not belong in the fellowship of the called out assembly. Does that make sense? So he says, if he teaches so as to increase righteousness and the knowledge of the Lord, receive him as the Lord. But concerning the apostles and the prophets, act according to the degree to the decree of the gospel. Now next week, I'm going to stop right here. Next week, I want to look at the difference between teachers and apostles and prophets. We're going to look at what the Bible says, okay? Because there are many people today that claim to be apostles. And let me tell you something. I do believe that there are apostles today. The word apostle is a word that means one who is sent. Okay? 
Now, as far as apostles of Jesus Christ and what they were called to do, there are no more today. They do not exist. And I will show you biblically next week where that is so. Now, as far as apostles that are ones who are sent by the church, we call them missionaries today. That's just what we call them. All right? Well, so next week I want to look at biblical teachers, biblical apostles, and biblical prophets, and how the prophet communicates with the church today and what that looks like in the New Testament church. So that'll be the goal for next week. All right. Any questions tonight? y'all for your time and attention. I hope you learned something and, uh, and, and I really hope that you're learning um, what it means to do things of, like partaking of the Lord's Supper by faith. By faith. That we believe what God has promised to us in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ and because we trust that word, what we do is a work of our faith. That we receive righteousness by, by faith but not because we are literally partaking of the body and the blood and eating and drinking salvation unto ourselves. That is not what we're doing. Um, that is a, um, a heresy and it is a false teaching and one that has been battled for many years. All right. Let's close in a word of prayer. You'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. and Father, we thank you for... Uh, just guiding us and showing us, um, uh, Lord, how you gave us memorial meals and what they are meant to do in our lives. Father, I thank you for giving us the remembrances. Father, we are such forgetful people. But God, I thank you that you give us these memorial meals so that we can remember the great sacrifice that has been paid, that has purchased our reconciliation and our home forever with you. Father, I just... Um, I pray, Lord, that everything that we have heard tonight has been something that you would have taught, Father. Lord, our goal is to make sure that we are feeding your sheep. And so, Father, I pray tonight that, uh, Father, anything that uh, was supposed to be taught, I pray it would be sealed in their hearts, and I pray anything that wouldn't would float plumb away from them, Father. But, Lord, I just pray, God, that your will has been done in everything that we've done here tonight. Father, we thank you so much. Father, we do pray, Lord, come quickly. Father, we look forward to the day when you truly bring complete peace, Father. And Lord, I just thank you so much, God, that, uh, Father, you've given us the hope that we have, and we know that it only comes through Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. God, it's in his precious name we pray these things.